0: everyone and welcome back to Blu-ray Boutique. I'm your co-host Tim Rosenberger and I'm your co-host
1: Rosalie Lewis.
0: And today we're going to be celebrating the month of October with two Alfred Hitchcock movies. One being The Lodger, a story of uh, the London Fog from 1927 and the other Notorious from 1946. So, uh, Rosalie, these were your picks for this month, so I was curious why um, Alfred Hitchcock um, in general, and why these movies specifically, especially since they aren't necessarily, I mean, the first one you could argue a little bit, but they're not necessarily like spooky or whatever, they're on the same wavelength as like maybe a psycho that he did or whatever, so why did you pick him and these movies?
1: Well, the why did I pick him is pretty easy for me, because I would say Alfred Hitchcock is probably my favorite director, period. I haven't seen too many of his silent films, but I've seen almost every single one of his non-silent films, and I absolutely love them. Rear Window is my favorite movie of all time, pretty much closely tied with Clueless, but you know, Mm -hmm. uh, both equally important in my mind. But yeah, he's, he's somebody that, you know, he's earned the nickname of Master of Suspense, and I think he really wrote the template for the types of movies that we now think of as horror movies, that we now think of as thrillers. Back then what he was doing oftentimes was not just novel, but looked down upon by some critics. And it took a while for people to embrace him on a critical level, but I think he always resonated with at least some audience members. Even when he was shocking them, he really had a good kind of finger on the pulse of what is going to push people's buttons, but not make them get up out of their seats and leave, right? And he had a way to really get under people's skin but also sort of slyly humorous about it. And he also was doing it in a really interesting way and like using techniques that hadn't been used before, or certainly not, you know, in these more mainstream films. So I think he just brought a lot of things together and he managed to be both a populist film director and somebody who really, if you look back on it, innovated so much of the art form. And he was working from the 1920s all the way into the 1970s. So, Honestly, you know, he just has such range that I've been wanting to talk about him and this kind of was a good excuse. Um, why in October? Because it's it's Hitchcock. As to why these two movies, I'll say partly it was just a matter of, we talk about things that are available on, on <laughs> boutique labels and a lot of his stuff isn't. These two happen to be, right? So they're both on the Criterion Collection and I, did want an excuse to check out The Lodger because I'd seen a, a talky version of it, a remake that was made later with Laird Krieger, but I actually realized I had not seen the original. So I was excited to see that. I was also excited to go back to Notorious because it's one of my favorite Hitchcock movies and it's a romance, but it's also got some of those edge of your seat moments. So... It definitely isn't what I would consider a scary movie, but it has a few elements that, you know, at least get your heart racing.
0: Before I forget, just for people who want to know, I know for a fact that um, Criterion has released, uh, I think, H. Hitchcock films, uh, The Lodger, uh, 39 Steps, Foreign correspondence Rebecca, Spellbound, which is out of print, and I think might be the first one that they release, uh, The Lady Vanishes, Notorious, and... I believe the remake of the the second version of the man who knew too much that he mm-hmm. um, did. It should also be mentioned. I do know that I believe it's uh, Kino also released a set of his films, uh, Hitchcock British International Pictures Collection, uh, which collects uh, some of his early films. I think all, all but one silent. I believe uh, the rain, the farmer's wife, champagne, the manix man. The Skin Game, and then they've also released, I think, a handful of others. Um, I think uh, Murder! Exclamation point, and then a bunch of other things. So there is a handful of stuff. Obviously, not everything he did, like, I don't know, 50, 60 films. So there's still mm-hmm. a lot they could be releasing. But anyway, yeah, these were interesting for me because I had bought uh, The Lodger a long while ago. This was actually my third viewing of it. But I hadn't seen Notorious. And I was happy that you picked this just because it's my chance to watch more Hitchcock films. I have not actually seen that many. I meant to make a list before we started, but I ran out of time to do that. But I know I've seen... Well, now I've seen The Lodger, Notorious. Oh, the one I can never remember. The, uh, the saboteur. Sab- saboteur, Sabotage, whichever <laughs> one. Of the Statue of Liberty. I've seen whatever. Sure. And then I've seen parts of Psycho, but not all of it, so I'm not counting that. And then... Oh, God. The Rope... Oh, and there might have been one or two others. Like, oh, Rebecca.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then it might have been one or two others. I've read the book to The Lady Vanishers. I haven't seen, and I've seen a BBC version of it that they did in the past few years, but I haven't seen the Hitchcock version. But anyway, um, so yeah, I've seen a handful of them. Far, 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 far from all of his films. But yeah, so I, I'd like this excuse to watch uh, more of them. And it's an interesting pick because we have The Lodger, which was a very early film that he did, which we'll get more into that in a second. And then we have something he did quite a bit later when he was a bit more established and a bit more comfortable with himself. So we have, despite the fact that they're by the same person, they're very, I think, different films. So mm-hmm. I think it should be fun to discuss them.
1: Since you haven't seen as much Hitchcock, I'm curious to know the ones that you have seen, have, has, have they made an impression on you? Like, do you feel like you have a decent sense of his style or are you still sort of figuring that
0: out? I mean, I know a lot of stuff about his style. Um, i not... All of his films are necessarily for me. They're not... Like, I like his stuff, some of his stuff, but they're not... I don't know if he's... He's going to be, I think, always a director that I admire, at least in a professional context, but he's not going to... And it's certainly somebody who I will seek out more of his films, because they're at least interesting and concepts, if not also an execution. But he's not necessarily going to be my favorite director obviously from a technical standpoint he's very interesting and just the way he constructs a film is very good but no i certainly li- and i find it interesting that his films i've i kind of just discovered this realized this recently that out of his films i have less interest in his later films especially the more no- well-known ones like like a north by northwest or what have you or not that i won't see north by northwest at some point or see those later ones i hope to watch all of his films at some point but i have less interest in that than his like his silent films and especially his like early like 30s film like his his 30s output interests me more for some reason which we might get more into that but but yeah yeah but not not and again not that the stuff he made 40s onward is bad or i'm not interested in them but just for some reason that earlier period interests me more for his stuff but um do you have a uh, kind of era or type of hitchcock film that you particularly enjoy
1: well i definitely like a lot of his classic you know the well-known ones i mean i absolutely besides rear window and notorious which are probably my two favorites shadow of a Doubt is high on my list i love the the way that it kind of unfolds and you're sort of discovering along with You know, the main character, what's going on, and you're piecing the clues together. I like the piecing the clues together kind of Hitchcock, where, you know, he doesn't tell you everything, but he tells you enough to start getting your mind working. I also really enjoy The Birds. I think that is a wonderful, amazingly constructed movie that on paper definitely should not work <laughs> and yet it somehow magically does and it hasn't really aged badly at all i mean there are a couple of effects in there that you might look at and think okay that that looks fake but for the most part very very effective i also really like some of the themes that run through his movies like he really goes back to the wrong man trope a lot of like somebody who's accused of a crime that they haven't committed or they're in a situation where they're in over their head he does that very well. And even though it's something that you'll see crop up time and again, it's still interesting to see the way that those folks have to work their way out of it. And I think it's a perhaps common fear that people have of like, what if I was in a situation where I had to defend myself, like, how would I do that? And, you know, there are people that are innocent that get arrested or, or put behind bars fairly often, right? So it's not something that doesn't ever happen. So he was kind of playing into real fears that people had and, you know, whether they were his own or he was tapping into something that he felt was pervasive in the culture. I always liked that he chose sort of relatable subjects.
0: And uh, going back to what you had said earlier, he, you know, besides picking relatable subjects, he did, you know, he brought this kind of educated European slash worldly kind of view of film where he studied, different people like german expressionism which we'll get into later and stuff and kind of brought it to his films but i think brought it in a kind of mainstream kind of way like it doesn't feel snooty or like he's looking you know looking down on people or whatever with it he presents it in a way that is very accessible Mm -hmm. it's not like like you know like using something like a german expressionism thing you know it's not like a very in-your-face kind of arty thing like uh cabinet of dr caligari which is very good but Mm -hmm. it's a very different thing or even something like um a film we did cover in this for one of the halloween things actually uh night of the hunter where that is also using that but again and it kind of again there's a tinge of kind of arty theatricalness about it and then uh, hitchcock is just he's using his films but i feel like in a more subtle way that's just telling the story, but again isn't in any way talking down to people or trying to educate them even really about it. It's he's just using them and but he makes it again very, very accessible. Yeah, interesting dude who yeah, I think very good at connecting with mainstream people.
1: Yeah, and I think too, like once he was able to kind of get out from under Selznick's thumb a bit, mm-hmm. because you know, David O. Selznick, uh Are is you saying not... He... He,
0: are you saying he's controlling Selznick? I
1: mean, they're both controlling. Let's not mince words. Like, obviously Hitchcock is very well known for mm. his somewhat um, difficult, unfortunate tactics. I, I'll I'll say with with especially his leading ladies, but uh. you know him and David O. Selznick, like they just did not share the same vision. And so while he was able to make some really good movies while he was dealing with all of that, I think his creative freedom certainly expanded out after he got out from under that contract and we're going to talk about notorious, but that was kind of one of the first ways that he was able to get out from under the thumb of, of Selznick. So it was just interesting to see. And I think too, you know, there had been sort of auteur directors before, obviously, I think, you know, even in the early days, right? Like a Charlie Chapman really did it all, but as time went on and like the Hollywood system became a little bit more calcified, you know, when, when Hitchcock came over from, from Britain, he had to work within that system. And I feel like not as many directors at that time had the kind of artistic freedom that he really wanted. So really once he got that freedom to do what he really wanted to do, that's when we really saw him blossom and make those types of movies that, you know, have become well-known for a reason. So yeah definitely interesting to see the course of his career and you can kind of see distinct periods of it so i'll be curious once you catch up with some of those 30s films to hear how you think they compare to the later ones
0: Okay, so the first film we're going to talk about is The Lodger, a story of the London fog, again from 1927, um, was the third completed film that Hitchcock made. He had made, um, his first feature was, I believe the first filmed thing that he directed, as far as IMDb is aware anyway, was a film possibly called Number Step 13, which was unfinished. I think I read that there was two reels that were completed and then I think budget stuff fell through and that was in 1922, so it remained unfinished and is considered lost. He made a short film in 1923 called or quote, uncredited co-director of a short film in 1923 called Always Tell Your Wife. And then he also which is partially lost, um his first completed feature film was a film called The Pleasure Garden from 1925, which is um, still in existence. I don't think it's ever been released in the United States on physical media, at least not on DVD or whatever, but I think you can stream it on Amazon and such. Um, then his second film was the Mountain Eagle from 1926, which is also considered lost. And finally, then we come to today's film, The Lodger, his third film, which despite the fact that he had directed a handful of things before The Lodger, he considered The Lodger his first real film because he was not terribly fond at least in his estimation of those other films. And it should be mentioned that uh, for this film, as a special feature, they do have uh, his the next film that he made on the Criterion version of this. Anyway, they have the next film that he had made it was also released in 1927. It was a film called uh, "Downhill." I think on IMDb, um, it has the it's listed by its American title um, when boys leave Bo- when boys leave home. So this is my third time seeing the watching the Lodger, and I had actually done a piece for this for 25 years later, which you can find. I might link to it in whatever description you're reading, you're you're viewing this on. But since I did that, I'm just going to read my summary, my plot summary from that, it's because uh, I make things easier for myself. So the Lodger is a suspense. Uh, it's a suspense thriller. It begins with a serial serial killer known only as The Avenger is uh, killing a blonde woman every Tuesday evening in 1920s London. So far as the film begins, he's up to seven murders. People who catch glimpses of him on the streets after killing describe the murderer as a man with a scarf covering his face. On a Tuesday night, as the London fog lays thick across the city, Jonathan Drew, played by, and I'm going to totally mispronounce this, I'm sure, played by Ivor Novello, arrives at the house of the Buntings with a scarf adorning his face. The Buntings are taking in lodgers, but Jonathan is an odd duck. He's a nervous ruck who practically breaks down at the sight of countless pictures of blondes that the Buntings, for some reason, have in their house. Later, when he becomes friendly with the landlord's fashion model daughter, Daisy, played by June Tripp, he anxiously awaits outside the bathroom door while she takes a bath, almost opening the door multiple times and being kind of suspicious. Um, and meanwhile, Miss, Mrs. and Mr. Bunting, played by Marie Alt, Alt and Arthur Chesney, uh, notice the young man's oddities right away. But June takes to the handsome Jonathan. Uh, the two spend time together. They play chess and talk and stiff and they fall in love. Uh, but Jonathan has a secret and a locked cabinet in his room and he makes makes quiet trips, nightly trips, out into the city. Uh, Daisy's cop boyfriend, Joe Chandler, played by Malcolm Keene, suspects Jonathan of being the killer, but is he the killer? Is he not? And can the real killer be caught before Daisy is possibly the next victim? So, a lot to discuss with this film, I feel. But the thing I do want to highlight straight away is the cinematogra- cinematography um, by a guy whose name I'm going to totally butcher here. Um, but a uh, Gaetano di Ventimiglia. It was this was his third and sadly final Hitchcock film. He had done uh, Hitchcock's other two features, uh, The Pleasure Garden and Mountain Eagle. But I think he does. I'm sad he didn't do more stuff, especially as Siskoch kind of got more comfortable with himself and all that, because he does wonderful work in this. Because it was the cinematography that initially made me buy this from Criterion, because I saw somebody posted a pop- popular yeah. screenshot or two from it of uh, Jonathan arriving at the house, and uh, it's kind of the lights have gone out in the house temporarily, and the landlady opens the door, and the, kind of the fog rolls in, and the night lights kind of kind of are k- shining outside the door and they got you know he has a scarf covering his face, his mouth and stuff and it's just really moody and 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 excellent that that image made me want to buy the film initially and watch it and yeah just throughout the film and it, it's just amazing to look at um, the fact that he was and I mean he was studied at that point I mentioned German expressionism he did study German expressionism I think in Germany, and tried to use some of those things in, in this film, not just in terms of how it was shot, but in terms of how long scenes were and all that stuff. And you can see some of that in terms of, like, there's some sharp shadows and angles in the film. Not a lot, but there are some. Um, but yeah, it's it's a just a great... Probably, from the films I have seen of his, in my opinion, is probably, in my opinion, the best-looking film that he's done. And beyond the look of it, he uses certain visual cues that are very good um, I'll get into more of it as we talk but one thing that I think he does very well he has just in terms of adding to the suspense every night like right before killing there's a show kind of going on and uh, there's like a sign a lights, lighted sign that just will flash two nights golden curls and that almost becomes like a like a forewarning of death and tragedy mm-hmm. and stuff, which is very interesting in terms of visual stuff. And there's other visual stuff that I'll get into as we talk, but yeah, I think just first off, just an amazingly looking uh, film and Criterion's version rest- restoration of it is uh, very beautiful.
1: Yeah. It is a gorgeous looking film and I'm so excited that it's been preserved for this long restored and you know, is available in such a high quality because it, it just looks absolutely fantastic. You mentioned that first shot where you see him coming into the Bunting's home and there's a few others that, you know, I don't want to steal all of your thunder, but there's <laughs> one that I especially loved where he's looking out a window and the way that it's shot, we see the panes of the window and the, you know, kind of the wood slats that separate the panes. We see the shadow of that on his face and it perfectly creates like this cross that goes down his nose and across his forehead. And it just kind of sums up what we're thinking at that time, right? Because we, we suspect him. We're just not sure. Is it possible that there are two sides to this person? And it's also just visually a really beautifully composed shot. And then there's that scene where you hear him like, well, we don't hear him because it's silent, but (laughs) it's implied that the buntings can hear him pacing upstairs. And then the camera is suddenly looking up at his feet from underneath the floor. And presumably they had him walk across a glass floor, I guess, to get that shot because it just looks so unique. And it's like all these angles and all these shots that you just wouldn't have seen in most films of that time period. And I do think, obviously, German expressionism was an influence, but there's also some stuff that I'm like, I don't think I've seen that anywhere else, right? And so it just kind of goes to the type of eye that both Hitchcock and his his collaborators had in kind of composing and, and putting these things together.
0: Well, yeah. And he's also just an amazing. I mean, this was near the end of the silent era. So, I mean, obviously he had a lot of films to look at. He had a lot of people mm-hmm. to learn from and all that stuff. It wasn't a new medium or storytelling thing by this point. I mean, it'd been around for I mean, really 40, 50 years film had at this point. But I'd be interested to see The Pleasure Garden, to see how true this is for that. Um, But it's amazing how still this early in his career, how efficient he is with storytelling, especially silent Mm -hmm. movie storytelling, where he uses title cards only when he absolutely needs to. You do just see the parts of the conversation that you need to see. Um, At one point when uh, Jonathan first gets there, he's talking to Mrs. Bunting, and he saying something we don't see what we don't see what it is unless you can read lips and then it cuts very briefly for like just a second or two to a sign in like the door window or something that says uh room to let and then it cuts right back to jonathan and mrs bunting talking and then mrs bunting like nods her head and like understanding and then like gestures upstairs so basically we can imply that oh he's asking if there's a room to let and you know he'll use like people typing on like a newspaper story on a typewriter or whatever. And you know, he all, does all these things to kind of get a notch so he doesn't isn't just doing title cards. But then he's also just very efficient in the other ways that he's doing it. And also always seems very natural. And, yeah, it's just it's very efficient in terms of how he's telling the story silently. But then also just in terms of the editing of it, it's always tense. It feels like we're always moving. It's just expertly crafted and put together. And, like... He implies sound when there isn't really any like this mm-hmm. scene at one point when Jonathan is sneaking out of the house and he kind of he's trying to be sneaky about and quiet to do what he's secretly doing. But um, I guess maybe he makes some noise or something. But for whatever reason, Mrs. Bunting, who's there alone because her husband's off doing something that night, she's alone in their room and she kind of wakes up and she's kind of listening and stuff in her room for what's going on. And at one point, I think Jonathan, like, there's a shot of him, like, on the stairs. And I think he, like, steps on a stair or something. And you can almost, like, hear the creak of it. And mm-hmm. hear, like, the shuffling of feet. Because I mean, then it cuts right back to her and stuff. And you can almost hear... You can practically hear it, even though, like, I mean, it's silent. I don't think there's even a music cue for it or anything in the in the score that's on the DVD. But you can still just hear it anyway. So it's just... It's amazing. He just... he te- uh, Hitchcock He just is just telling this story so well it's actually kind of it's it's one of the probably one of the best put together silent films i've ever seen
1: yeah you're right about that efficient storytelling for sure like just the way that he edits between the the scenes upstairs with jonathan to downstairs where the buntings are and cutting back and forth in a way that doesn't feel forced but it lets us know what they can hear and kind of their reactions to whatever it is he's doing upstairs And there's another scene, too, where they think something tragic has happened. And that's another one where I swear I could hear what was happening, even though it's all done visually with very amazing skill. So, yeah, very, very effective. And I feel like for the you're right, it was it was the end of the silent period. So we were starting to see a little bit different styles of acting. But I felt like the acting in this was particularly organic and and somewhat natural compared to some of the other silent films that I've seen even from that time that were a lot more exaggerated. You know, I felt yeah. like the character's emotions were a bit more subtle and a little more be- believable as a result. One thing that I wish I had known before I started watching is that this is the first Hitchcock movie where he makes a cameo, his famous cameos mm-hmm. that he would make. And I feel like in some ways that just tells me he was very confident from the the early times, right? Like it takes a certain amount of confidence to just like cameo in your own movie. And I love that he was doing that already. And, you know, it just adds to the lore. I also find it interesting that the victims in this movie are once again, blonde women, right? And like that's something that would come up over and over again in Hitchcock's work is that the Hitchcock blonde, like the, the icy blonde. And in some ways like that room, with all the pictures of the blonde women in it, it was like, oh, that could be Hitchcock's own room, right? Like I can just imagine <laughs> him having a room with like all these gorgeous women on the walls. And you know, he just, you got to catch them all kind of Pokemon style. Right.
0: <laughs> I never thought I would hear Pokemon and Hitchcock mentioned. in the well, same you know. thought, but... And another element from his, especially from the obvious stuff, like suspense and thrillers and blondes and killers and all that stuff is the element of his humor. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you kind of mentioned it in the introduction, but he does have a sense of humor about him. Sometimes it's light, but often it's kind of dark and morbid and stuff. And you kind of see that in this film. Earlier. Yeah, there's
1: definitely some, some dark humor um, at the beginning where we're first kind of hearing, well, not hearing, <laughs> we're seeing <laughs> people learn about the latest in the series of murders. And you see this room full of models. Most of them are blonde and they're like, oh, another... Another blonde girl, I guess that's one of them says something like, no more peroxide for me, thanks. So, you know, he, it, <laughs> it's dark. It's very, like, macabre, but it's also true to the potential attitudes there might have been of, like, these, these young people who sort of think they're untouchable and are just sort of joking about a serious situation. Like, they're diffusing it with humor.
0: Yeah, and you mentioned in that opening sequence or opening sequences of seeing, you know, London, you know, and the different people's reaction to the latest murder and stuff, it's, he does, going back to just his skill with this, he does a very good job of establishing kind of the grip these murders have Mm -hmm. or are having on London. I think the original book is inspired, I don't know if it's explicitly about them in the book, but it's at least inspired by jack the ripper killings and stuff mm-hmm. but yeah i mean it's just, he does a very good job of just capturing the mood of this and how suspicious everybody is and how on edge everybody is and stuff and i find it interesting that in kind of hitchcock fashion there was in my opinion kind of a MacGuffin to the film mm-hmm. and which i think is kind of partially accidental i won't get into all that but there were restrictions that selznick put on him in terms of what he could and couldn't do that was in the book and that he, he could then translate to the screen stuff basically hitchcock wanted to go into a different direction slightly with the film but anyway in in my opinion there is kind of a macguffin to the film in that it doesn't really matter at the end of the day who the killer is and i think you can see that in other films too where sometimes it's less important who the killer is and it's more just important who the killer isn't mm-hmm. um and it really taps into paranoia and suspicion and sometimes not necessarily in this film but in other films it can also tap into prejudice and racism and all that type of stuff so I think that's kind of what it is in this film. It isn't really necessarily important who the killer is. It's just, is Jonathan the killer or is he not? Is this love story going to continue? And, you know, is Daisy going to get hurt or killed or something? So, yeah, I found that kind of an interesting angle to it. That kind of idea to it could almost be anticlimactic, but Hitchcock makes it work in a strange way.
1: Yeah, and I think this is a great example, early example, of how some of Hitchcock's sensibilities and perhaps his, his thoughts on the human race are influential on other future writers and filmmakers. I think specifically of like a Stephen King, where, Mm -hmm. you know, oftentimes there is some threat of like a lurking evil, but then the thing that turns out to be a bigger threat is just other people. And so even if there is a supernatural element, it's not even as bad as like Mm -hmm. what the average person will do in certain circumstances. And that fascination with the, the capability that a regular person has to be something unpleasant is something I think he taps into very well, starting off Mm -hmm. in these early days.
0: Well, even you have kind of the fear of mob mentality and the Mm -hmm. fear of just people kind of, becoming violent as a group near the end that kind of happens and it's kind of unjustified that they are being that with that little information that they are willing to commit to that violent act um, and kind of what suspicion and and fear and paranoia and stuff can do to people after a while Or maybe even not after all, maybe after a short period of time, too. I don't know if that was intentional necessarily by him or not, but it's something maybe you could read into it at the very least. A interesting and kind of good point to make about society, especially society in those kind of tense moments in time.
1: Right. And I mean, this was, you know, post World War One, but pre World War Two. And I think obviously England was in the midst of both of those conflicts and, and very, very real danger. And I also wonder if that played any kind of role in just like the psychology of it, right. Of, of you didn't know in those days, like who might've been a spy and I feel like spies come up quite often in Hitchcock's work. And we're going to talk about that in the next one too. But that idea that you can't necessarily know who somebody really is and you just have to either trust or you're suspicious of everybody. And like, that's a choice that you have to make. And we see which characters get rewarded for which choices in both of these movies. And I think that's really interesting. now we're going to jump ahead by 19 years and talk about notorious which came out in 1946 and this movie stars Cary grant ingrid bergman and claude rains which is i would say an amazing trio of actors to have landed all in one movie let alone a movie directed by alfred hitchcock so already has all of that going for it if you have not seen this movie it is essentially a romance, like I mentioned earlier. And it starts off in a decidedly unromantic way with uh, Ingrid Bergman's father getting convicted for being a Nazi spy. So again, that theme of spies coming up, right? And Cary Grant is a federal officer who basically he's trying to get Ingrid Bergman should be a spy for the government, for the American government.
0: My department authorized me to engage you to do some work for us. It's a job in Brazil. Oh, go away. The whole thing bores me. Some of the German gentry who were paying your father are working in Rio. Have any of the IG Farben Industries? I tell you I'm not interested. Farben has men in South America planted there before the war. They're cooperating with the Brazilian government to smoke them out. My chief thinks that
1: the daughter of a... Uh, of a traitor well he think she might be valuable in the work they might sort of trust you and you could make up a little for your daddy's peculiarities why should i
0: patriotism
1: that word gives me pain so that's the premise that's how it opens is she's throwing uh i guess you could call it a pity party right <laughs> like she has some friends over at her house after her father's conviction has come through she's very drunk And we see Cary Grant, who she doesn't yet know, is, you know, an agent, basically sitting across the table from her, also enjoying some drinks, but mostly bemused at her behavior and then eventually reveals himself for who he is. And that's the way that it kind of unfolds. Claude Rains is Sebastian, and he is also working for the Nazis. And she ends up having to basically go undercover, seduce him, and try to figure out what it is that's going on in his house so some serious things at stake here and of course some sparks are flying between grant and bergman as well and one of the greatest kisses in all of cinema happens in this movie so Hmm. lots for me to love i don't think it's a secret of how i feel about it i've talked about it on twitter as well but i'm very curious since this was your first time watching it what did you think
0: it's interesting with this film, especially watching it with back-to-back with The Lodger, because I watched both of these the same day, actually, before we recorded it, recorded this. And it was interesting to watching. This was, again, my first time watching this one. And the, like you said, this was made 19 years after or came out 19, 19 years after The Lodger did. And it's interesting seeing this and comparing it because, I mean, obviously, one's an American production, one's a British production. And... It's interesting to watch it because and I don't want to come off like a film snob when I say this. I don't necessarily even really mean this in a bad way at all. I just think it's interesting to see the difference how these films are different. Where I feel like the like guy played Jonathan in The Lodger, well he was a star and certainly at that time and that affected how Hitchcock made that film and blah blah blah. There is a certain, you know, star power to, you know, Cary Grant, Bergman and Reigns. And there's a certain star led kind of thing going on with the era this was made in in the 1940s. You know, what store doing the studio system and studio is intentionally really trying to make these people big stars in that big old fashioned sense that we think of. And I find it interesting that the lodger, I feel, is kind of more just. You know, it's a film that kind of you especially since those the actors in that, however big a stars they might have been at that time, aren't really going to be known that much today by people, even to maybe to a certain stand by film buffs and all that stuff. And and it's more succeeding, I think, on just its skill and it as a movie, where I feel like this notorious and again I don't mean this in a bad way at all, or to be a snob about it. But I feel like it's succeeding partially just as it's succeeding not entirely, but in a big way because of it is, you know, it's a star movie with Cary Grant, Igor and Bergman, and Claude Rains and stuff. And it's just has a different feel to it and stuff. And because of that, and it's it's just a very different type of movie well in many ways, but I think especially in, partially in that regard, in terms of how it was made, and I'm sure how it was marketed. And just how it comes off as a like, Does that make sense?
1: It does. And it also, I think, is dead on. Um, because Selznick actually was sick of dealing with this movie. He thought the script was bad. He had several rewrites done. He thought the characters were super unlikable. <laughs> and so basically, he was like, you know what, RKO, why don't you just buy it from me? You can have the whole thing. Like, you can take the stars. You can take Hitchcock. You can take the script. And he sold it to them. And so I think he recognized, you know, that he didn't really know what to do with it. But the, the fact is, it doesn't matter if it wouldn't have worked on paper because it works amazingly well, specifically because of that star power, because of this love triangle between three of the most famous performers of that time period, all working within their peak, like chemistry and they play well off of each other and they have that spark between them. And you really believe that, you know, Claude Reigns very well could be in love with Ingrid Bergman. And you believe that Cary Grant could be as well. And you certainly believe she's in love with him. And, you know, so there's, I feel like that audience empathy or sympathy factor goes up because of the star power, the same way that I think rom-coms, particularly in the eighties and nineties were able to trade off of that. And, you know, I think of like the the Meg Ryan Tom Hanks collaborations, or even you know Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal, right? Like when we know the names, we also feel like we're invested in a way that we might not be if we didn't know who these people were. And I think that just adds to again like the the power of the movie itself.
0: There was a um a documentary that TCM did. Uh, they and part of it they had when they're talking about I think the era of I think it was 30s and/or the 40s and stuff uh they had a uh, part of that documentary it featured uh, comments from peter bogdanovich and he was talking about how i don't think it was even necessarily specifically about hitchcock but he was talking about kind of the star system of that time talking about how all the stars of the talking period had peculiarities they they talked funny they didn't talk like everybody else can you talk like this cary Grant talk like that jeremy Stewart talk like, i mean they all they don't sound normal And uh, they were peculiar. The audience liked that. They could expect that when they went to see a film with them. It was like a brand name, almost. With all three of them, Bergman, Grant, and Reigns, there is a certain brand name to them. So you feel, and part of this is nostalgia, because I'm very nostalgic about 30s and 40s films, but there is a safeness about them when you see them on screen, even in tense moments. There's a comforting aspect to them that kind of makes you want to go along with them, even in intense circumstances or thriller-type circumstances and all that stuff. And there's I think even Hitchcock, to a certain extent, and I think it has a certain... Like we said, he has certain tropes that he likes to use and stuff sometimes better than others, but he has certain tropes that he likes to use. And to a certain extent, while films are different and stuff, you kind of know what you're getting with certain... To a certain extent, what you're getting with a Hitchcock film. So there's even intense Hitchcock films as a comfort level with them when you go into them. And stuff and so i think that affects the viewing of it too all that kind of elements of it in terms of the star system the fact that this has stars in them where they're not necessarily you know cary grant wasn't necessarily the most you know varied actor but we kind of don't see mu- as much these days except in kind of a character actors the most you see this in today is like a george clooney or something where that's most...
1: exactly what i was gonna say i feel like And there's a movie coming out, right, with George Clooney and Julia Roberts, and I don't know if it's going to be good or not, but, you know, it's one of those movies where it's like, well, I love seeing those two on screen together, so I'll probably go see it, and I imagine these two, Ingrid Bergman and and Cary Grant being kind of the the Julia Roberts and the mm-hmm. the Cary Grant of their time, right? Like I feel like they are at that level. They're A-listers. Everybody knows who they are. Like Ingrid Bergman at that point had done Casablanca, mm-hmm. which also, by the way, featured Claude Rains mm-hmm. um, in a more of a supporting role. But you know, it it's one of those movies, right, where it's it's an event just because of who's in it, and you know, it's it's again, it's Hitchcock making basically his first, and some might argue only real romantic film. Um, because all of the other romantic subplots I can think of in Hitchcock go horribly awry <laughs> at some point. This is the one that actually has a happy ending. So, I mean, you know, To Catch a Thief, I guess you could throw in there too. But again, there's always like, there's complicating factors. But yeah, this is this is a great example of, of using the stars very well to do what they do well. And I, I like that. And I think also like you can trust these actors to carry off lines of dialogue and kind of that repartee that is more befitting, I guess, of like a screwball comedy at times, but you know, they make it work in a suspense thriller. And then when there is that suspenseful feeling and things are starting to get real dangerous and tense, you have that like wish of like, Oh, I wish I could go back to that time when they were just like necking and saying these funny one-liners to each other. Right. And it still works. Whereas I think certain, lesser actors from the time period might not have been able to pull off both aspects quite as well
0: yeah that's a good point it's kind of like a style of dialogue that you would see in maybe a hits girl friday type thing but exactly. it's a, but it's yeah. a in a serious context but it has those same sort of rhythms and stuff to it but the way they're saying is serious or if it is a joke it's kind of it's, it's, it's a comment that hurts or that is, you know, that is not a nice thing to say. And that you know, even at one point, I mean, at one point Bergman's character, Cary Grant says a not nice thing about her to her face. And she says, Oh, you're always aim for below the belt. So yeah, you have those types of comments, but again, like you said, done in kind of a screwball comedy way.
1: I want to sample some of the lines of dialogue because I think there's some really great ones and some of my favorites which i jotted down come pretty early in the movie because as it goes it gets a little bit more serious but the beginning part right where she's at the the party and everybody's hanging out and just drinking somebody tells her that she should probably like cut herself off and she says
0: don't be silly the important drinking hasn't started yet
1: and then she's trying to get rid of her guests and she says,
0: I'm very sorry. You all have to go. It has been a perfectly hideous party.
1: And I thought, you know, we've all been to a hideous party or two in our lifetimes, but it's rarely the host that's saying that. <laughs> but yeah, I loved that. I loved how as Cary Grant is like walking her out of the house to go for a drive, a very advised one, I might add, he takes her empty glass out of her hand and he sets it on the throat of a passed out female guest i don't know if you noticed that but um there's like a lady that's just like passed out on the couch and he literally just sets the glass on top of her which i thought was a really funny touch and i wasn't sure if that was hitchcock or if carrie grant just sort of ad-libbed that moment but i thought it was great but you know the the way that they we've talked before about how sometimes one of your pet peeves can be like People falling in love a little too quickly in the movies and especially movies from, you know, this time period. These two definitely do start to have that spark very quickly, Mm -hmm. but it feels more natural to me. And we are told that her character has a tendency to kind of have a lot of male conquest, which is interesting, right? Like this was after the code, but she still does some things that I would think the code would frown upon. But yeah, I feel like her and Alicia is her name. And then Devlin is, is his name. I feel like Alicia and Devlin have a very believable, like whirlwind. I wouldn't even call it quite a romance because they don't get a lot of time to, to build that part of it. Like they're just starting to, and then, you know, she gets this assignment, which basically requires him to like, send her into the arms of the enemy. Mm -hmm. And that is the setup of the conflict so i don't know what did you think about their relationship
0: it's interesting because i was thinking about that that trope but while i have lush patience for that sort of stuff i think if you have the right actors for it you can kind of pull off the i think fairly unbelievable um, or at least not believably written fast romance type things and these actors can pull that off in that kind of old hollywood style where you can buy it, or at the very least, you don't mind it. And interesting enough, I think, in a way, I think maybe the best romance, and it's one-sided, but the best romance in this is maybe with Claude Rains and his feelings for Bergman's character, where I do think he probably, you know, does. Because it was mentioned that, I mean, they had had a past relationship together, sort of, and that's one reason why they want Alicia for this assignment is because they, he, she had known uh, Sebastian Rains' character before, And it was still kind of a one-sided thing. He was really interested in her, and she wasn't really, you know, and it didn't really go anywhere. And just kind of a faker romance of this. But I feel like, while she doesn't really like him in that way, I think he really does probably love her in that way and stuff, even though he's up to nasty things with spies and Nazis or former Nazis or whatever. You do kind of, at least I anyway, felt almost kind of bad for him at one point, because I'm like, oh, at some point in this movie, he's going to figure out that she really is not into him, and she's Mm -hmm. really just kind of using him. So... I think there's almost a sympathy... I I felt kind of a sympathy for him and stuff. And you do almost feel like... It's interesting that he's never really like a... Cloud Reigns is never really a big evil mastermind type guy and stuff. He's not an idiot, but he's not this big, smart, bad guy dude. And he... It's almost, in some ways, in over his head, I think. Mm -hmm. But it kind of, because of that romance angle and kind of the way he plays, when sometimes the veneer kind of disappears and you see his more vulnerable side and more of his fears and stuff, especially with the people he's working with and the dangers of what could happen to him, even with the position he has in this group, you kind of almost get, because of all those elements, you almost get kind of uh, more, maybe more of an idea of how these these real-world situations might have worked, where you kind of almost see more of a real person there instead of just a mm-hmm. film character or a film villain and stuff you can kind of get more of the dynamics of how these things would work yeah and it's just it's really interesting and kind of something i haven't really seen in a lot of films from this time and i haven't really seen when claude rains plays like a bad guy it's more of a always on top evil dude guy and in this one you see much more of a real person and you see a vulnerable almost scared guy at a lot of points
1: right and a guy who is. Very much dominated by his mother, uh, a theme that, again, (laughs) has come up in other Hitchcock movies, right? But, you know, um, Sebastian's mother lives with him and she's very controlling and he's made reference to, oh, you know, you never (laughs) like the women that I fall in love with and you always have a problem with them. And she does suspect something is off with Alicia from the very beginning. She just hasn't quite identified what it is. She thinks he's just... Being duped because she wants his money, but obviously there's more going on there. So it almost seems like we get the impression that perhaps he joined up with these, you know, these Nazis potentially partly because of her influence. Like that's the vibe I got. Now, I'm not saying that to excuse any of what he did, but I think you're right that it portrays the ordinariness of people who were capable of, again, like, great evil and that they don't all come across as these evil people. I mean, every single one of those Nazis kisses Ingr- Ingrid Bergman's hand as they meet her. And like, you know, they seem friendly and charming at the dinner and they're drinking wine together. And, you know, it's all very civil.
0: It's interesting that for Sebastian, it almost, because he's so dominated by his mother, he almost feels like really, just really insecure more than anything else. His mother never likes people. He, t- the women he takes home, he was, basically turned down by Alicia years ago. And apparently he, you know, still was very much carrying feelings for her. And so, yeah, he just, if there's any kind of main emotion or trait to him, I wouldn't say evil. It was just somebody who's very insecure, maybe lonely and just wants to, I mean, I don't think he's even that interested in all the spy Nazi stuff. He just probably wants to settle down with a woman that he likes and, live quietly and stuff but he's wrapped up in all this other stuff that he doesn't probably know how to deal with always
1: it's interesting though like how his apparent kindness and sweetness can turn yeah as things go on so I think it's also a good example of like the whole incel kind of nice guy Mm -hmm. trope of like oh the, the woman never falls for the nice guy she always likes the bad guy and you can kind of see that in his possessiveness of Alicia every time he, you know, sees Devlin around under the pretense that Devlin, you know, is this kind of playboy that she met on the plane and and she's not interested in him, but he's interested in her. That's their kind of ruse, right? And he's very possessive of her and is constantly worried that he's going to steal her away and all this stuff. And, you know, you do get the sense that, yes, he, he does care and love her, but also it is a little bit about like possessing her and having her yeah. because he was not interested in him. She rejected him originally. Right. And so he's never kind of let that go. Mm-hmm. And then when he finds out kind of what's really going on, he mm-hmm. doesn't let his love stand in the way. That's mm-hmm. for sure.
0: I guess the point, I guess maybe both of us are making is that there is, there was a three, there is a three dimensional aspect to him. I think he's probably the most three dimensional out of all of these, of all of the three main characters.
1: I'm going to have to disagree that he's the most three-dimensional because I have to go with Cary Grant on that one. Mm. And the reason I say that is I feel like Grant does often play roles that are mostly charisma. Mm. This one, he really has that, but he also has so much more substance underneath that. You see it when he's literally, I mean, he's clearly fighting his own feelings for Alicia, right? Because he knows her reputation he knows what her father did he knows he shouldn't be falling in love with somebody who clearly has an alcohol problem and has you know had many male conquests before and he he still can't help himself but he's trying to hold that at a distance to protect himself and probably to protect her as well because of their employment situation and like working for the government and so i like the complexity there because he could be possessive in the same way that Claude Reign's character is possessive, but he's not. He also could be, you know, manipulating her and falling for her and just, like, going with it and, like, not letting her have this time to sort of redeem herself in her own eyes but he lets her make the decision of, yes, she's going to do this. And she's mad at him in a way mm-hmm. when she finds out that he had feelings for her and he still let her go through with like marrying this guy as part of the spy plot. But I think it's important that he gives her that choice and he's not taking that agency away from her. So, yeah. I don't know. I really like mm-hmm. Carrie Grant's portrayal of that character because, again, I think he's somebody that on paper could be sort of thin, but he flushes him out very well.
0: Yeah, it's certainly an interesting character that I think, yeah, Grant pulls off um, well. Even though I mean, and he doesn't get a lot of screen time. It really is more of, it is really kind of, Ingrid. if I would say there's a main, you know, the main person of this, I would say it would be more Ingrid Bergman than anything else. She's kind of the one kind of leading this and kind of balancing both sides, dealing with Cary Grant and then dealing with Claude Rains and everything going on in that house, so she's kind of the main focal point to me of this movie
1: yeah she definitely is and what a great performance because she's having to have layers of her performance right she's performing for sebastian and she's in some ways she's also performing a little bit for devlin because she's she's frustrated with him but she's also like oh i'm a professional i'm gonna do this right i i can figure it out and i liked kind of seeing that and then kind of seeing the vulnerability that comes underneath as time goes on. And she starts to realize the situation as it's, as it's evolving. Yeah. I, I really just love her in general. <laughs> I could watch her all day long. So I, I love this movie because it's such a great showcase for her talents in a way that even though I absolutely adore Casablanca, I think this gives her more to do.
0: I found it interesting in this film. I don't know if it's a sign of the times or of Hitchcock or both or something else, but And I wonder if you noted this at all, but I find it interesting that, you know, if this kind of film was made, well, when these types of films are made today or even later, you know, if they were to remake this now, they would have added, they would have like added like 20 more steps and elements and twists to the film Mm -hmm. where the film is fairly straightforward and there isn't a lot of elements to it. She's trying to figure out what's going on, what. Sebastian and these other German people and this doctor and stuff are doing, and there's some mysterious stuff. There's something going on with the in the wine cellar, and they have to figure out what that is, and they find out what that is, and it's never even fully resolved. Again, again, it's kind of just basically a MacGuffin, really, and the film kind of ends satisfactorily, but almost in a kind of a subdued kind of way and stuff and maybe the people who we think are the villains don't really get the kind of last stand that we would normally suspect from them. So I think it's interesting that it's as simple as it is and that there aren't as many twists and turns as we would maybe expect there to be now, and there aren't as many elements and intricacies in this spy plot as you would more normally expect.
1: Yeah, certainly no Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, right? Like, there's, you know, not a ton of guessing games it's not a who done it really it's more just a will they get together will she be saved will you know will they catch the the bad guys before the bad guys catch on and the most tension that we feel in the movie is all around a key and how much champagne is being consumed right like <laughs> that's the highest level of tension that we get so it's kind of interesting because that kind of comes in the middle of the movie and then after that it's sort of dealing with the consequences of what happened there. So it's a different format for, for Hitchcock and for a movie of this type. But I think, again, that puts the emphasis more on the romance than on the suspense.
0: Yeah, the romance and really just about the characters in general and in their, in, in their relationships with each other than really the spy stuff, which in the end doesn't really matter a whole lot.
1: So it seems that October has been a month of sales. Hmm. <laughs> For quite a few of the boutique labels that we love. And so that may be a little hard on the pocketbook. But it is definitely something that we also Mm. enjoy indulging in from time to time. So for myself, the only one that I caved on was the Criterion Flash sale, which was a 24-hour sale. And I ended up scooping up three titles Mm. for my collection. Aided by one of those lovely $10 off coupons we being a criterion channel subscriber so that helps ease the pocketbook a little bit so the three i picked up this time have been on my list to grab for a little while now one of them was devil in a blue dress which i think i talked about with quite the excitement when it was announced for, for um criterion i had the dvd but i had not of course gotten the blu-ray yet and then gilda which is a film noir that i adore and high sierra which is a humphrey bogart mm-hmm movie that I should have had a long time ago for some reason I didn't so all three of these are film noirs and I wanted to make sure I was well prepared for Noir Vember coming up so that's what guided my purchases on this one but how about you what did you pick up
0: yeah so I picked up two things I really should have picked up three um, because I had I think three saved up coupons from them I just hadn't used and I was waiting for a flash sale from them to use them so I had like $30 I could take off I th- should've bought a third film, but I was doing the math wrong. I didn't realize I could have bought because I had to pay for shipping and I could have right. paid like an extra 8 bucks and basically gotten a whole movie. I didn't do that. I was really annoyed with myself. But I just got two things. I was originally because one of the films I got was uh Lonesome from 1928. It was a film that I think maybe was upgraded recently because it was because its uh, number is uh 623 in terms of spine. But I think it was I thought I saw it on the on the coming ups fairly recently, so I don't know if it was upgraded to Blu-ray recently or what, or maybe I just took me this long to notice it. But anyway, I noticed it one day while looking through the stuff and I added it to my wish list and then I finally bought it today. It's a not as well known 1928 film by um back of it describes as a creation of a little known but audacious and one of a kind filmmaker, Paul Fajos. And um I was going to get the fourth volume of the Martin Scorsese uh World Cinema project which had just come out recently but then I was picking stuff while I was at work and by the time I was at home where my coupons were the box set was out of out of stock so I was very oh, no. I know so I was like well what should I get what should I get but I remembered that um because we reviewed uh Blowout recently and we had mentioned that that was a remake of a I think Italian film uh, called Blow Up and I've been really interested in Jello re- lately, and Blow Blowout and had elements of that. I think Blow Up seems to have elements of that, so it just looked interesting, and I liked certain elements of Blowout, so I decided to get uh, Blow Up as well. So long way of saying I got yeah Lonesome and uh, Blowout, which is from 1966, which hopefully we'll be talking about one or both of those in the nearish future, but. I w- did not have as much restraint with you, because I'm terrible <laughs> with sales. I got stuff from Kino, because they had a sale, and I think Shadow Factory also had a sale. Shadow Factory, I think that was the first thing I bought, and they still haven't arrived yet, uh, annoyingly. But, because I think they're behind. But, uh, for Kino, I did have some stuff. Let's see, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, which is the, at least the earliest known feature animated film, from 1926... Antimo, which is again si- i think i figured out almost all of these are silenced that was totally by accident a film which i don't remember the nationality of this film i want to say it's a middle eastern film but i could be wrong about that but it's a film uh from kino uh, uh called hit the road uh, which just looked interesting and in kind of a road family not family movie but involving a family that just looked really interesting so talk about that. Uh, speaking of Hitchcock, a uh, his movie Number 17, which I think is actually, I thought it was silent, but I think it's an early sound film that he did from the early 30s. I mentioned this earlier. Um, Hitchcock, uh, The British International Pictures Collection, which has looked really interesting, and he had some films about, uh, there's a boxing film in there, which I'm really interested in boxing films, and it was silent, so that looked interesting. And then finally, Kino has uh, Pioneer film uh, collections, uh, Pioneers for African-American cinema, and pioneering films for uh, women in cinema from the early days, and I fi- I really wanted to get one of those. And I finally decided that I to get to, to get one of them, and I got the pioneers' first women filmmakers set, which I'm very, very awesome. excited about. Um, so, Fantastic
1: set, by the way. I also have it, so I highly recommend.
0: Yes, I'm very excited to dip into it when I have some time hopefully well soon as soon as i'm with this and some other project stuff i should have time to dip into these and i'm very excited i'm going to take a break from doing certain things and just dive into a lot of these because i've been neglecting from watching so anyway so that is my terrible impulse buying where i bought way more than i should have but i couldn't resist even though my bank account would have liked it but
1: (laughs) And guess what? We get to do it all over again, because in November, I'm sure there's going to be another half-price Barnes & Noble sale, where if it's anything like July, Arrow and Criterion will be half-off. So, speaking of uh, Criterion, they have announced their lineup for January, so I think that is the newest one since we last recorded. Any of the titles jump out for you?
0: Yes. They're release, releasing the infamously troubled production by Terry Gilliam, uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. And then there's uh, Bergman Island.
1: Well, it's interesting because I don't think I've seen any of the movies that are on the list for this month. But <laughs> I am a big fan of Claudette Colbert. Mm-hmm. And she is in Imitation of Life. Not the Douglas Sirk one, but the John M. Stahl one. And this is coming to Criterion as well. Um, Also stars Louise Beavers, who's another one that I enjoy. And so I'm curious to check that one out. I haven't had a chance to yet, but I think it'll be really interesting. And it also features an interview with Imogen Sarah Smith, who I always enjoy her um, contributions on the Great Tyrion channel and the writing that I've seen by her. So interested to check that one out. Um, And then the other one, which we didn't mention yet, was This is Not a Burial, It's a Resurrection. And that is a movie I've heard nothing but good things about. I don't really know much about the story, but I've heard that it's well worth checking out. So I'm hoping I get a chance mm-hmm. to watch it, whether it's something I pick up at the library or I watch it on the channel or perhaps I will you know, blind buy it at some point. But yeah, I definitely want to see that at some point
0: too. Yeah, is there anything else you, Any from any of the other labels that you would want to highlight that's coming out soon?
1: Actually, yes. Uh, I feel like we're getting an abundance of riches here as we get towards the end of the year. So Maybe these labels planted it on purpose for people to put it on their Christmas wish list. I don't know. Or to blow all the Christmas money on Blu-rays and then, sorry, family, you're out of luck. <laughs> um, <laughs> in any case, one that I'm excited about is uh, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot coming to Kino as a 4K Blu-ray. And this, if you haven't seen it, is Clint Eastwood and Jeff Bridges. It's directed by Michael Cimino um, for the Heaven's Gate, I guess, ill-advised affair. It's a great movie. It's... A, I, I actually originally saw it at a noir city festival and it, it has a lot of noir elements although i think you could also characterize it as um other things too but it's from the 70s it's a, also got a great george kennedy performance and if you ever wanted to see jeff bridges in a dress get the chance to do that here it's yeah it's a fantastic movie so that's one of them that's again coming to Kino. then from Cohen Film Collection or Cohen Media Group, which we haven't really talked about too much. They're putting out a Joan M- Micklin Silver movie that I haven't seen called A Fish in the Bathtub. And this cast alone, not to mention I love Joan M- Micklin Silver, but uh, the cast alone is worth seeing Jerry Stiller, and Mara, Mark Ruffalo, Jane adams and Missy Yeager. And it's basically about a comedy duo that um are constantly bickering and they're you know this is a comedy right so it's it's worth seeing for you know i i love jerry stiller i think he's fantastic rest his soul and i'm, I'm very curious to see this since i never got the chance to before and i love joan mcclone silver and then the last one i will talk about is coming from vinegar syndrome and i will admit a slight bias here it is texas chainsaw massacre part two 4k blu-ray And, um, not only have I not seen this and I need to, but also if this version is going to feature brand new commentary from my pal and, uh, editor Patrick Bromley of F this movie. So
0: very exciting
1: for that. And I'm excited to see the movie as I know it's, you know, well-reviewed. I like Toby Hooper in general, and I like the Texas chainsaw, the first one. So I'm curious to see this one. Taking a little preview into what is coming next for us here on Blu-ray Boutique. Next month for November, we're going to be talking about Twin Peaks, Missing Pieces, as well as Twin Peaks, The Return. And then coming up in December, we're doing Going My Way, as well as Bells of St. Mary's. And finally, we have a little more dip into Ozu for January. So excited for all of those.
0: Okay, so before we wrap up, um, if you want to catch any of our uh, host sites stuff you can check out the website at 25yearslatersite.com and uh, you can also check out its twitter 25 Media, where it does have links to um, it's now I think uh, some of its sister twitters and sites are, are kind of going away um, but you can still check out it also it still has a specific horror section at horror obsessive on twitter um, you can also check out my twitter account at cinema Pack Rat, where you can find links to my youtube channel where I think, as this is released, um, this will probably be re- released in the middle of. Uh, I can finally, I guess, announce it because I announced it on the ch- on the channel. If you are not listening to this on my YouTube channel, I'm doing a thing um, in the week week of the 24th of October through the 30th of October. Um, I will be reviewing um, a film each day. Um, they'll be linked to um, if people know of the famous Solomon Grundy nursery rhyme. Solomon Grundy born on a Monday, christened on Tuesday, married on Wednesday, yada yada yada. I'll be covering a film each day that has to do with that day's particular life events like being born, or christening, or you know, mar- marriage or whatever. So I'll be talking about a film for each one of those. Um, I'm very 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 excited about it. It's something I've been wanting to do for seven eight years. So uh, if you want kind of a, a little bit more of a specific explanation of that check out my youtube channel i did a little announcement video of that but um as this comes out that should already be in uh progress so do check that out um i'm very excited about it
1: yeah i'm very excited as well i can't wait to see what movies made that cut uh you can check me out on social media i'm on twitter at rosalie lewis you can also check out my writing and some of my other appearances on F And I believe in early November uh, or at least sometime in November, I'm going to be popping up on the reserved seating YouTube series from F this movie to talk about a Ben Affleck movie. So stay tuned for what that's going to be. And yeah, I'm also looking forward to Noir Vember, as I mentioned earlier. So I'll probably be posting about that a fair amount. If you're a fan of film noir, definitely follow me on Twitter.
0: So in the meantime, for anybody who watches along with us, maybe take a trip back to the mysterious town of Twin Peaks so we can be ready for our third anniversary where we'll talk more about that show. But until until then, just watch a bunch of films and have fun.